The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, April the 25th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I was joined today by Sarah Barden and Harry McGee from our political staff and also by the leader of the Labour Party, Brendan Howland. First of all, I asked Brendan how he thought the Eighth Amendment campaign was going. Brendan Howland, you're very welcome to the podcast. I suppose the... The main item on the agenda right now is the Eighth Amendment campaign. Uh, have you been out campaigning yourself? Yes, in Wexford. I think that we've been working as a Labour Party, obviously, to bring this reform about uh, since we opposed its enactment in 1983. Uh, I think there's only two of us um, in the Dáil uh, that actually voted against the amendment in 83. Um, I'm in odd company, as far as I can deduce. I think it's only myself... Uh, and Shane Ross, who are survivors of that, who actually voted against inserting uh, the Eighth Amendment. But one of the things I did actually was I, I reread um, all the. I was in the Shannon, just appointed to the Shannon then. I reread all the Shannon debates. That's quite shocking in so many ways. Uh, firstly, I, it really, I'm really proud that the Labour Party group uh, tabled the amendment to refuse to give the bill a second reading. Um, and a very coherent argument was made. Uh, on behalf of the group, we all spoke, but the, the main speaker was uh, Mary Robinson. And much of what she said in a, more than an hour's contribution to the Shannon has come to pass. Um, and it was only passed by three votes in the Shannon. That's remarkable, actually. I didn't yeah. realise that. With, um, yeah. with Fianna Fáil, obviously, all voting for it. And if you read some of the contributions, they're quite shocking now. Shocking why? Uh, just some of the rhetoric, some of the, the awfulness of it. Read it. Um, I won't give it oxygen by, by repeating it. Um, but the amazing thing was Fine Gael all abstained, even though two things. Uh, I'd forgotten these things, not you read them back. Uh, the bill was actually introduced by the then Minister for Justice, uh, who was Michael Noonan, who introduced a constitutional amendment in two sentences. Clearly didn't believe in it. Hmm. And the Taoiseach said that the proposal was actually dangerous, but then recommended Fine Gael senators to abstain. Uh, so we've, we have, from that time, have been campaigning against so People, it. I suppose, have forgotten or were never aware of the twists and turns yeah. which led to the passing of the amendment in, in 83. Yeah, and then we went on. Obviously, the X case happened. Um, the trauma of the X case. Uh, I became Minister for Health um, to implement the X case. And um, I don't. people, again, won't remember... Um, the children's coffins that were brought to my office, the picketing my, of my office, the postering of every single shopfront in Wexford that Howland murders babies. That was in the 90s. Um, so the Labour Party has come on a consistent journey on this. Uh, so certainly we're out canvassing now. And now that you're out canvassing, and say, for example, in your own constituency of yeah. Wexford, which I think you know could be seen as a sort of a bellwether constituency in, in some ways, it's yeah. got a mixture of rural mm. and a commuter belt and all those kinds of things. How different is the is what you're hearing from people compared to what you would have heard 20 years ago? It's, I think, absolutely different, in, in truth. Um, there are people that I, I approach because I know them, including my own supporters, who would be very religious but who have thought very deeply about this issue. 
And one of the things that people say to me, um, which is interesting, is, Brendan, I've made up my mind. Actually, I don't want to hear an argument. I've thought about this, and I'm, I'm going, uh, even not for my own sake, not for my own perspective, but to give space for other people to make decisions because of the complexity of this matter. And I think that's a sea change in the attitude of people uh, to this issue. Um, and in terms of young people, uh, I was at uh, a table quiz for Together for Yes in Wexford, and there's about 200 young people, many of whom are not politically active in anything else, but are very passionate about this issue. Sarah, you were out with Fine Gael canvassers for, for, for Yes. Obviously, there are some Fine Gael canvassers for No, but the Fine Gael uh, canvassers for Yes on the, at, the, at the Lewis this morning. Yeah, uh, Minister general mood? for Justice Charlie Flanagan, the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, the Minister for Housing, Owen Murphy, and the Minister for Education, Richard Bruton, and a number of other um, Fine Gael figures were there too. I suppose the general mood is obviously you're catching people just off the Lewis. Yeah, I get a bit of fright if I was stepping on the Lewis. I was facing yeah. that crowd. Yeah. There, was a, there was a hefty L crowd waiting for them when they got off. But I think the general feeling... Um, was positive. I do think what um, Brendan is saying is accurate. A lot of people have made up their mind mm. either way and don't want to engage in conversation on this and don't want to be shifted from their position. But in saying that, there is a huge number of people who are undecided and who are looking for the facts around this uh, particular subject rather than, you know, lobbyists or campaign groups. They want to hear impartial information with regards to that and that's where I suppose the Referendum Commission will come in to a certain extent but what I'm sensing is that people are tending to paint certain demographics um, as yes or no voters Uh, so for example we tend to believe that older male um, voters are no voters just automatically and from what we could see this morning and what um, others are, are reporting is that that isn't a fair representation That's that there true. actually is a lot of o- older men who've ex- you know experienced life have had particular uh, experiences of the Eighth Amendment and have are now strong yes voters and people um, would presume as well that younger people would be all yes supporters but the focus group for Together for Yes would say that the male category from the age of 20 to 35 are the strongest cohort of no voters. So, you know, there's a, there's a tendency by us in particular in the media to paint, you know, women as yes voters, no men as no sure. voters, you know. And but there's it's, obviously it's huge complexity within those as well, you know. It's, it's, it's far from black and white. It's interesting though, Harry, I mean, you've been out with campaigns and meetings around the country. You wrote a piece uh, in the last couple of days about Roscommon, which was the most conservative constituency in the country in the last referendum. Do you see those kind of demographic patterns? I, I think it's probably still a little bit too early to say because there's still five weeks left and the thing that I have noticed most is the, the actual lack of engagement. I mean, I know that the people who are committed, yes. There are people who are committed, no. There are people who are receptive to listen to arguments that might sway them from one side to the other. But there's actually a lot of people who don't want to answer their doors or people who are n- not receptive uh, at, at present or who haven't engaged, who know very little about it. At present, and it's kind of interesting because it's a huge issue for us, but we sometimes forget that that this is, might not be the priority issue for a lot of people out there. In the Important and all uh, as it is, and when you look at the turnout in in previous uh, referendums on abortion, the turnout has been surprisingly low. I would have expected sixty to seventy percent, but the the number is closer to. 50%. Do you think it's is there an element of within this of the fact that abortion is a difficult and painful and for many people an unpleasant subject that they don't want to think about, perhaps much more so than something like the same-sex marriage referendum? The, the same-sex marriage referendum was a much easier proposition and because people could, could understand it, there wasn't a complexity. It was almost 
binary. I'm not trying to be too simplistic about it, but it was yes or no. With um, abortion... Like goodbye, daddy. Hmm? Or the breakup of the family and everything else that was... That was divorce. That was divorce. But, that was but da- even, even on that, it was to shift... The argument was that it was shifting the paradigm of the that same family. That every child family. deserved yeah, a mother yeah. and a father yeah. was but the, the line. But the, yeah. the, choice, the, the point that I'm making is that the choice that's been offered in, in this referendum is a difficult choice and it doesn't Very seem difficult. to be a, a correct choice. There's no cr- choice that's 100% correct. And each choice that people will make will have its drawbacks as, as well. And it seems to me uh, that for some people, at least at the doorsteps, uh, what's been offered by both sides... Uh, doesn't really, um, they, they find both choices quite difficult. The, the no side are campaigning, they, they're using a very hard line. They want the status quo ante uh, to pertain, uh, no uh, compromise for FFA or for rape or for incest. And people find that hard uh, to, to fathom. On the other side, uh, the 12 weeks thing has presented a difficulty for people at the doorsteps because their perception is that you're going from a quite a restrictive uh, abortion regime uh, to one that is quite liberal uh, from from their perspective as well. So those on the yes side will have a bit of persuading I, I, I must say to, that, to bring them over to them. I must say that I, I don't, I haven't found anywhere where there's a very significant group of people who wouldn't address the hard cases if they could. Uh, you know, that core that you're talking about, I think that's a very small number of people. Um, the net issue that the people are going to be asked to vote on is whether the Constitution is the right place to deal with these matters. That's the net issue. The law um, will be a matter for the Oireachtas. Um, in due course, and obviously that won't be set in time, although I have a very strong view that uh, whatever decision the people come to on this will be uh, a defining and permanent decision for the foreseeable future. And that will go both for the um, rejection or maintenance uh, of the uh, Eighth Amendment, but also for any legislation that ensues from it. A lot lot of people won't make that distinction that you've just made, Brendan, the distinction between the the Constitution and the legislature. They will look at it as uh, as a kind of a rolled rolled in in one We've always, in every uh, every one of these social issues, we've always, if you like, presented the model legislation that will ensue. But it was always understood that any legislation, you know, is... Uh, it is exactly that, a model legislation. But isn't there a question, Sarah, if I could bring you in on this? We did an extra podcast with Pat Leahy last uh, Friday when we got the, um, the poll results out. And Pat's analysis of the poll um, was that, yes, was in a commanding position and it was very much the, the yes sides to lose still, even though the, the, the yes vote had, had, had diminished somewhat. But he also said that the no campaign so far had focused very much on what Harry's referring to there, what you might call the very hardline position that uh, that abortion is wrong in all circumstances and that that was not a way in which no could make further gains. But I mean, we, when we had John McGurk in from, uh, Save, from Save the Eighth, I would have thought his position was more, his the political position was more along the lines of uh, the case is not proven, the safe thing to do is to vote no because we are, there are problems with the legislation. And in a way, that's an advantage that the no side in any referendum campaign has. I think the reality is, is that most people at the beginning of this debate would have found themselves somewhere in between yes and no. So the difficulty for the no campaign is its hardline stance on those exceptional circumstances. And when we asked John McGurk about this last week in the podcast, he was adamant that the status quo should remain in all circumstances. And when we questioned him about the victims of rape, incest and women who've received diagnosis of fatal fetal abnormalities or indeed the women who have to travel uh, to the United Kingdom and other places and the women who um, take abortion pills, they have no alternative. And that's a difficulty for them because a lot of people um, who have difficulties with the 12-week proposition, and a lot of people do, don't find a home 
um, in the no camp for themselves because they don't um, they don't ever want to preside over a situation where a woman uh, who has been a victim of rape would be forced to carry that uh, pregnancy to full term or to be forced to travel abroad. So the no side is very hardline in its arguments and there's no room for manoeuvre. And I think that's a very that's a difficulty for them. And I do think that their graphic uh, imagery, um, in particular yesterday, I mean, I was outside coming back from my lunch yesterday outside the doll and there was a picture of a dismembered fetus outside the doll where kids were, were just five feet away. A bunch of school children were protesting for a friend of theirs who took their own life um, as a result of bullying. And they were protesting uh, to make bullying a crime. The kids were probably 13 it's about 17. And then we had a bunch of school children walk past this massive picture of a dismembered fetus. And it should be said that, you know, John McGurk has very strongly, uh, very strongly, very strongly dissociated dissociated with, them, that, that kind of with this campaign. But mm. um, the graphic imagery is turning people away. For once, I mean, I agree completely with what Sarah said. So she's improved an awful lot in her analysis. <laughs> <laughs> it's a miracle. Um, um, That's I, not what I, we want in this podcast. I'm uh, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with what Sarah has said in ter- terms of, of, <laughs> of her uh, analysis. There, there was an expectation that this would be a very bitter uh, and divisive campaign. And uh, I, I heard John McGurk dissociate himself from that. I mean, those, those images are just appalling mm. and should not be on any, po- uh, on any lamppost in anywhere in the country. But the interesting thing about the no camp is that they too have learned from the 2015 referendum, the playbook of that referendum, and when you see them in operation, I mean, when I was in Drogheda last week on, on both sides uh, of the river, looking at two campaigns, both of them arguing very different things. But in terms of modus operandi, in terms of the way that they approached uh, the campaigns, they were exactly similar. The Dayglow jackets, the little cool little badges with Neil or Thaw written on them. And this very civil, uh, um, visceral engagement on the doorsteps where they're trying to connect to people and talk to people and be receptive to people. And this kind of, you know, battering people with a crozier and all, all of that that, 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 that no longer forms part of, of the, of the no, uh, campaign. And besides the usual trolling on Twitter and on social media that you expect on, on any issue, uh, the campaign has been very well-mannered in general uh, since, the, since the beginning. And let's hope that it stays there because people can then focus on the issues. Negative imagery well, no, or... Other than, other than the stuff you get in the post um, and that has started to come in, there's organised postcards and all, all the usual stuff. Uh, and that goes both to my home and to the office. Um, but that's, that's, you know... You expect that. You expect that. That's you know, something to overcome. I think, by and large, um, the campaign has been much calmer. I mean, I'm, I, I was seared by the 83 campaign and what happened subsequently to it. Uh, I mean, I remember um, the, the priest in Palfour having the doll, the, 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 the doll on the altar, Palfour in the south of my own constituency, um, with red streamers coming out of it, um, and a poster vote, uh, yes, to save lives. Um, and that priest was Father Sean Fortune. You know, the irony of it oh, is just goodness. beyond, beyond measure. Um, and listeners who might not know, he was convicted of... Various offences, sexual offences. Sexual against offences people. against children, yeah. um, subsequently. And committed, he committed suicide himself. Um, but, you know, that was the atmosphere of that time. And I remember uh, in High Dudgeon, uh, my very close coordinator, Anne Byrne, at the time, we rang the, the Bishop of Ferns, um, Brendan Comiskey, to protest at that sort of thing. 
Um, but that was the atmosphere. It was very, very difficult. Um, uh, in 1983, I certainly was the only public representative, elected public representative, who took a stand against the amendment at any public forum in Wexford. Uh, so that has changed, and I hope it's changed um, on a permanent basis for the rest of this campaign. Uh, maybe if the, if the polls tighten and people you know, want to make a final push at the end, that will change. But I think uh, from the those of us who want to remove the Eighth Amendment, I think um, the rational argument is the one that is winning the day. I'm certainly not in any way complacent. Turnout will be important. Maybe we can move on to another question, which sure. we asked at the at the polls last at our poll last week, which was the state of the parties. Mm. Um, Labour is still stuck at a very historically low level. No sign of of movement at all. No sign even of a return to what used to be the base level of labour support of around ten percent or thereabouts. That must be very difficult for you. It is difficult, but I mean, <laughs> the base level is um, uh, you say ten percent. I mean, that's what we got in good times uh, repeatedly. You know when. Uh, well, a little well, bit more at times. Well, mm-hmm. twi- twice we got significantly more, twice uh, in the springtide and in the Gilmore surge. Uh, but, you know, Pat Rabbit um, election, Rory Quinn's election, 10%, is, and that's what we're, we're working hard uh, to re-achieve. I think Pat Leahy was very fair in the poll, uh, in his analysis, that it's very hard to encapsulate the impact in terms of a, a party like the Labour Party, who, whose vote uh, will not be uniform across the country. I mean, what he said, what Pat Leahy said... Uh, was that we have seven elected TDs uh, all likely to retain their seats and uh, at least seven more um, in contention. Uh, so that's, you know, that's, I think that's a fair analysis of where we're at. Uh, the job we had after an historically damaging election in 2011, uh, after unprecedented times in government, um, was to consolidate the party first. And that was very difficult when we had lost 30 of our 37 seats and all the resources and the profile and the on-the-ground on uh, activity that goes with 37 TDs, offices, staff, resources. Uh, and I think to consolidate has been a significant uh, first step. Uh, it's not a huge advance. By and large, if you look at all the opinion polls uh, in the last six or eight months, we're about 6%. Uh, to get to 8%, to get to 9% would mean that we would have the sort of representation in the next all that uh, w- w- would be average for us. I suppose one party. of the questions would be, obviously suffered hugely in the in the last election in reaction to, to, to government, and that's been ventilated and gone over many times. But there might be a question, you know, you look. I looked at the front of the Irish Times when these numbers came out, you know, and you ask yourself, is there a systemic change in Irish party politics, the traditional two-and-a-half party system has been dispensed we, with? Many times we've written that script. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> the PDs well, were the, um, the new incarnation of a new paradigm in Irish well, politics. Well, indeed, but Sinn Féin seem to be here to stay, and they're obviously eating you know, par- part of your lunch to some extent. Well, Sinn, Féin, you know, the, Sinn Féin certainly have, have made advances, uh, but they're a long time at it. They're decades at it, uh, and they've never been in government. Uh, they're reluctant to be in government in the North, um, haven't been in government in the South. Uh, so they're in a position that they have never uh, a record of actually implementation of policy, hard decision-making ever to defend. Doesn't seem to be doing them any harm in the polls right now. Well, if your objective is to be permanently in opposition, I suppose, you can. that's a, that's a grand position to be in. But I think actually Sinn Féin have an objective uh, to be in government sometime because from my perspective, the notion of going into politics to be a, common, a commentator is not... I mean, you can do that from outside of politics. If you want to really make a difference, you have to be involved. 
But you have to have critical mass to do that, and that's our job right now. But one of the things I just say to you is that the Labour Party is different from, you know, smaller parties. We have real depth, real history, um, roots in places. I was in Wicklow Town last Monday with Jack, Jack O'Connor doing a centenary commemoration of the um, anti-conscription strike 100 years ago this week, organised by the Labour Party. A seminal moment that changed politics, defeated Lloyd George's conscription plans for Ireland and saved 10,000 lives. There are people in that room who are descendants of Jim Everett and others who are active in that campaign. So our roots are deep. Harry, what do you think of the current state of the Labour Party? Um, I agree with uh, Charlie Hockey on one point, maybe just on one point only, that all opinion polls are bunkum. I know it's almost heresy to say it with an earshot of the newsroom here, but opinion polls are a measure but they're an extraordinarily crude measure. And actually, if you look at the, at the opinion polls around the referendums, they have been notoriously inaccurate over the years. If you go back to the substantive issue in 1992, our own opinion polls were showing that the yes side would prevail. And in the event, it was rel- relatively decisive, actually a very decisive win uh, for the no side, I think it was 65 to 35. Uh, so you just have to take them with a, 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 a degree of caution. In relation to Labour, the Labour f- figures are still in, in single... Uh, digits. Uh, the party went through its kind of usual period of purda after taking a battering in the 2016 election, as Fianna Fáil had done in 2011, as Fine Gael had done in 2002. Labour people were persona non grata for a while. But if you go out, because on this campaign, actually a lot of Labour people have been very active, you know, all of that kind of hostility has disappeared. So the party, I think, is, in, is on an upward curve, and I don't think it's actually quite been captured by opinion polls at the moment. So I put them a little and bit is higher. is that because of, in a way, it's similar, the, the, the Fianna Fáil comparison is, is, is appropriate in some ways because you have a party which has deep roots yeah, and, and just has, because it gets com- it has, has a torrid experience and it has traditionally had 10%. And it's not like a Renewa or the PDs, which are parties that were formed on an idea but didn't have the organisation of the network to back it up. So I think that, that Labour will come back. I think Sinn Féin uh, will, will affect all parties but we can't think of the growth of Sinn Féin as inexorable. I think Sinn Féin might very well, depends on how Mary Lou do, does as leader, but they might very well plateau or even lose seats uh, in the next election. I can't see them going over 30, and for example. I can see them maybe getting 25 or 26 on a good day. And to what extent, Sarah, does the continuing existence of a range of small left-wing parties from the Social Democrats to Solidarity to PBP to various left-wing independents um, cramp Labour style in terms of trying to regain this lost ground? It's, it's, it, is a, it is an issue. It's a problem um, for the Labour Party because there were uh, up till very recently, I suppose, the Liberal conscience um, in the Dáil and the Janet. And now you have the Social Democrats, the Green Party, Solidarity, People Before Profit and Independence for Change, who are all, supposed to steal in the clothes of uh, the Labour Party. And that is a, a difficulty for them. The other thing I'd say as well, you know, Sinn Féin do perform well in opinion polls, but when it comes down to elections, that support never quite materialises um, for the uh, for the Sinn Féin party. Fianna Fáil had five years to rebuild itself. The Labour Party are only two Ooh, years at it. I mean, it's it, Brendan Ireland was elected really to steady the ship and he has done that. You know, I mean, I remember just, just after the election, you know, the biggest issue for you guys was to distance yourself from Fine Gael. And it took, a, it took quite a while, you know, because... You could constantly be reminded of your decisions in government. But now we're two years on and though, as Harry says, those things have faded. Those issues are not thrown back in, at the Labour Party. Um, on, on, 
as regular a basis as they were. And if you look at constituency by constituency, you can see the Labour Party gaining seats in Loud, for example, in Dublin Bay North, in Dublin Bay South, in Clare. If you look at the individuals and the personalities involved, there is scope for the Labour Party to grow at the next general election. And it's like, it, when you look at opinion polls, uh, it, as Harry says, they're very crude. And if you look at a constituency by constituency, you can see where the Labour Party will gain seats. But again, they have a difficulty, and not to be rude about it, but in terms of the age profile for the Labour Party. Now, I know that they have, you know, they've elected a lot of people like Deirdre Kingston. And Deirdre stuff. Kingston, Rebecca yeah. Moynihan, uh, Andrew Montague. The, uh, there's a whole range of young candidates as well. Because the reality is, Harry, once we get through the, the referendum in four or five weeks' time, the political agenda is going to be very much dominated by the coming end of this government, but possibly the coming final budget of this government and big issues about taxation uh, versus spending and where that spending should go and, you know, redress for public service employees and all those all those kinds of things. And that's very much what the agenda is going to be, in a way, a sort of a classic left versus right, social democrat versus Christian democrat. Well, not quite. I mean, redress for public employees um, will be high on the agenda for Nigel with uh, an election in the offing. Why wouldn't it be? Because there are sure. votes there to be captured. Um but it, it, it's true, the government will have far more scope uh, in this budget than it had in the budget last October, where, uh, you know, the, the uh, and, and sorry, I can't avoid using the word, the fiscal space was 750 million, whereas it will be talking about several billion, uh, potentially, uh, mm. depending on how much Pascal Donoghue puts away in his rainy day fund. Uh, but um, so there is scope. But I mean, public pay restoration will be very high. Uh, on the agenda, they've been talking about it for a long time. Do you think I think bid, the time there could be a to- bidding war between parties as well, to who's going to get, get the teachers back their money ex- first and that kind of stuff. My, my own opinion. I, I think it misses you, the whole point. I mean, but, but I just just sure. let's finish up. I mean, it, I think the, the deadline is twenty twenty one. I mean, for for it to be completed, mm. but I think there will be an acceleration of that process, and the reason for it, I think, will be. Um, Nakedly, nakedly political, in, in my estimation. I, I'm going to be, um, uh, I suppose, an unhappy guest to say this, but I read your editorial this morning in the Irish Times. And it is quite shocking. In the editorial you say, the unsustainable rise in public sector pay was the prime cause of the crisis in the public finances that led to austerity. That's just not true. It's a contributory factor. Your editorial says... The prime cause of the crisis Sarah, in the public finances. I told you crisis. not to use that phrase. <laughs> I told you, Can't Sarah. Be blamed for that. But I mean, that really is. That really is. Having gone through a banking crisis that brought us to our knees, that gobbled up our um, our pension reserve fund in sixty billion of recapitalising of the banks, to say a pay rise to doctors and nurses and teachers and guards was the prime reason for the economic collapse is quite shocking. We'll all trot upstairs so you can have a chat with the editor well, about I'm, that I'm, one I'm, when we're finished with finish, finish the podcast. But, 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 that, but that is set, that, that's scene setting because it, it, it is absolute revisionism and I, and I really do expect better from the, the Irish Times. We, if we have learned anything from the shocking decade we've gone through, we have to call it out as it is. And on one hand, in your paper today and in all the papers, there's talk about restoring bonuses to bankers and, get, you know, that we, we won't be able to retain people in AIB if we don't give them uh, more money or uh, access to shareholding. And at the same time, an increase for nurses or teachers um, is an existential threat because it was the prime cause of the economic collapse. That we have to have 
reality checks here. Now, for, fortunately, I'm not required to defend every single line that appears in an Irish <laughs> Times editorial because God knows I'd have to contort myself with all kinds of shapes to do that. But um, I accept your point about that line and I agree with it personally. But on the other hand, there was an issue during the Bertie years and during the later Fianna Fáil mm. years mm. of solving every problem by throwing cash at it. And one of the things that did emerge when the financial crash happened, for other reasons, as you rightly say, was that the state was, was, uh, was spending far too much money, far more money, far, far more money than it could uh, than it could afford in a year-by-year year Well, basis. let me make two points. Um, firstly, you have to understand the nature of the pay cuts that happened, largely under feet of fall, I have to say, because the only pay cut that I brought in under the FEMPI legislation was for those earning over 65,000. But all of that was anchored in emergency legislation because you can't arbitrarily cut people's pay. And if you read the preamble in each of those acts, it says because of the national emergency. Now, the day will come when somebody will go down to the four courts and say, well, is the emergency still on? And if the courts determine that there is no emergency and if we're all going back to, you know, a a balanced budget, uh, we're bringing our deficit down, that day will come. Uh, So we have to have pay restoration. And that's why I've argued for two years. That has to be done in a structured and in an organised way. And the notion that anybody would argue that the, the entire panoply of FEMPI can be in some part retained doesn't understand the basis of it. It's all anchored in an emergency that, thank God, uh, we have emerged from uh, and we have to have an orderly unwinding of that now. And the second point that I make, and I genuinely make this as a former Minister for Public Expenditure, is there are key sectors across the public service now where we have great difficulty in in recruitment. You saw the guards in terms of IT this week. Um, A third, more than a third of all the IT people working in Angarda Shirkana to sustain complicated and important uh, security IT systems have left um, because we can't pay them the sort of money that's available elsewhere. And that's true in the Office of Government Procurement. It's true in a range of other areas where expertise needs to be held on to. And I suppose most definitively in the health service, where it's hard to get um, a range of um, services, particularly outside of Dublin, uh, to get people to fill consultant posts or even midwife posts. So we have to have a reality check about uh, what are norms in 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 um, in the society generally before we you know start compartmentalizing public sector pay and private sector pay? Sarah, um, Pascal Donoghue is the golden boy of this government in in some ways. Fia Kelly was writing a sort of a mini profile of him of him yesterday, and was saying this is going to be the, the proving of him uh, over the next six months or so. I think this is going to be the, the the testing time where if he delivers both politically and I suppose economically and, and navigates his way through. What for many people and Brendan will know this well can sometimes be more difficult when you have money on the table than when you have no money on the table because the clamour. Well, there's now expectations. Mm. You know, when you have no money, you know, it's easy. It's easy in one way. I'm sure Ben would say it isn't easy, but... uh, You you can see how well we got on. (laughs) But in a way, when you have... How popular we were as a result. When you have cash, you have more people who are expecting um, a little bit of that cash in their back pocket and you have plenty more people uh, who uh, expect it to come their way. Um, I think for Pascal Donoghue, look, in 2016, I'm sure a few people sat around this table saying that Pascal Donoghue would have been lucky to hold on to his seat in the last general election. And he outperformed us. 
He then became Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform. He's now Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform and Minister for Finance. He's also probably the closest uh, to Taoiseach Leo Varadkar around uh, the Cabinet table. And, uh, you know, he's also the natural successor now as well, isn't he? He's so also the natural arise. successor. The biggest, um, the biggest person to gain from Simon Coveney's uh, to and fro over the Eighth Amendment referendum was Pascal Donoghue because while the Taunish the um, gibbered and jabbered about what he was going to do with regards to the referendum, people started, people who supported him distanced themselves from him quite suddenly. And so now the natural successor for Leo Varadkar is Pascal Donoghue. That's a remarkable turnaround from a man who could have lost his seat just two years ago. And so he is the golden boy. Um, and Felix Wright, this is a significant test for him. What's even more of a, a test for him is whether he can win brownie points for Fine Gael on the back of it. Because Fianna Fáil, um, the Independent Alliance and everybody wants their fingers all over this budget. Fianna Fáil were first to come out with the restoration of teachers' pay. Then it was Finney and McGrath the Independent Alliance. Now everybody's talking about the restoration of pay for public servants. And so how Pascal Donoghue navigates through that whilst retaining the you know, the benefits for the government will be a tricky situation for, for him to be in. I think it'll be it'll be interesting to what see. What do you reckon, Harry? Well, I remember talking to a Fianna Fáil, a senior Fianna Fáil politician not too long ago, and he said, don't be fooled by this uh, pleasant demeanour that uh, Pascal Donoghue has. He said, when you scratch him underneath, he's a bitter blue shirt. And um, he, Pascal is very... He's, I always thought he should be in the Labour Party. <laughs> he's you quite, also he's thought Leo Ranker should be in the yeah, Labour Party. Never, he's, never. He's quite ideological. Uh, he's he's what very much... What, what, do you mean, what do you mean by well, that? He'd, he'd, be very much in, he'd be very much in favour of the free markets. I'm not saying that he's a Tory, but he would be in, uh, in the soft Tory... A bracket, and he probably would have read today's Irish Times editorial with slightly more benign eyes uh, than the leader of the Labour Party uh, did. But he, he has a balancing act to do. He's he's very confident. He's very assured. He's a smart guy, and uh, I, I'm sure that he will he will have no difficulty in terms of framing a budget and standing over it uh, afterwards. I think um, what Sarah was saying is, is true. I mean, with Simon Coveney, again... Stop for, agreeing for, with me, Harry. People will get worried. But uh, with Simon Coveney, we had this kind of strange instance of, of life imitating art, of Simon Coveney living up to his Oliver Callan parody in relation to the Twelfth Amendment. And but that, does and that it, happen to all Irish politicians at some at, point? At days. some stage. Inevitably, you turn into the parody that's mm. been, been made off you. But I mean, it, it actually was politically very embarrassing for Simon Coveney because it showed him as being indecisive and not in control. Brenda, can I just ask Sorry, you, ahead, you know, just with regards to everything that we're talking about, um, where do you see the Labour Party after the next general election? I mean, you, you could potentially be a game changer in terms of coalition options. Well, I have a myopic focus on the next election um, and our my job is to make sure that we are relevant. Uh, we've always been relevant uh, over the decades because uh, we have something to say. We have a policy platform that matters for people. And we have to reconnect that. Uh, in fact, I, I think that our uh, manifesto in the last election was probably too broad-ranging, too complicated. We need to have very clear, focused uh, positions uh, to win people back to our traditional values of Labour. And after the election, if we do um, get what my ambition is, uh, something like doubling our seats, um, then we'll see how things happen. Um, so is this in the, in, the, in, the, in the famous British political phrase, go back to your constituencies and prepare for government? Is no, that what you're saying? no, absolutely not. Go back to your constituencies and win your seat, is what I'm telling people again and again and again. Um, I, I think the landscape is extraordinary. Uh, and people are making a mistake if you look at, look at um, the political landscape right now. 
Um, we are not going to have the same haggling after the next election. The notion that if you look at all the opinion polls, nobody is going to, to be within an ass's roar of a majority. Uh, so what happens then? It, it will be impossible for Micheál Martin, obviously, to do another deal if, if Fine Gael is the, um, uh, the larger party. Equally impossible, if, if, it, if it comes to pass, that Fianna Fáil is the larger party, for Leo to be, uh, if you like, um, the support base uh, for, uh, for Fianna Fáil. So the kind of arrangement we have now will not be on the cards. Do you not think so? Do you not think, I, I, Absolutely not. Do you not think so? I, Absolutely I think that, not. that is possible. Because it would be disastrous for either of the two parties. Um, it's funny because I would have thought that a lot of what Michal Martin is doing at the moment is making it possible for a similar arrangement yeah. or something not not a million miles away, except the other way around, to happen after the that. That Leo would um, be a support base out of out of office for for Michal Martin. Uh, that would be unthinkable. So I think a much more likely scenario, and it's actually happening in in terms of it, and astute uh, observers around me um, are commenting up, upon it. Um, the unthinkable of a Finnegal. Sinn Féin alliance, mm. I think is really something that um, is a potential outcome of the next election. They, they both will deny that passionately. Um, but but p- pragmatic politics... But the Labour Party could potentially be... I mean, if you're right. The Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael probably won't win an overall mm. majority. Sinn Féin will, may lose or may gain. One thing is for certain is that independents will probably lose out mm. in the next uh, general election. So the Labour Party could potentially be the government makers... So, you know, it's, it's either Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil for you guys. So which oh, one is more oh, preferable? Uh, well, we never. I mean, I've negotiated programmes for government with both. Uh, and I can, I can tell you, I, I regard um, both with the same degree of caution. Um, we went into government in 2011 because the country was on its knees. And we made a choice um, that, bluntly, other parties don't make, and certainly Sinn Féin never make, to say, we need to go in here to do right by our country. Uh, whatever the consequences for ourselves. I mean, when you're, the, when you're the leader of the party at the time, Eamon Gilmore, saying that the next time we, 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 we have a conference, we'll be marching our way through a sea of placards. Can you ever see Sinn Féin or anybody else saying we need to do this in the national interest, whatever the consequences for our party? We did that. But we've learned from that. and We're seared by that. And we will talk to anybody after the next election, but on very clear policy platforms. But, but, Brent, but Brendan, um, you say that the Labour Party must remain relevant. So surely after the next election, part of being relevant is for the party to survive and yes. for the party to grow. Once you go back into coalition, you're going back into the same old merry-go-round Murray and you're going to take a battering in the next election. So surely to remain relevant in Irish politics, uh, the self-survival thing must come into it and Labour Party must turn itself against coalition after the next you general election. You make a very compelling case. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure people within the party are making that case. No, no, too. you make you make a very yes. compelling case, and I think it's it's one that we have to be it's, mindful of. It's always been part of the debate within Labour, hasn't it? Absolutely. It. Mm. I mean, there the, the are two very clear views I have. One is we have no relevance at all if we don't exist. So we have to uh, exist, and that means we have to have a, a strong base. We have to grow, and we have to be relevant. I am not interested. Uh, and I certainly will be uh, not promoting the involvement in the Labour Party in any make-up-the-numbers game. Absolutely not. Brendan, Harry, Sarah, thanks very much for coming in today.
And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. And remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. We're always grateful if you rate the show as well as it helps to get us to a broader audience. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts and you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.